saying about um, fucking Domino's people, we think we caused an Amazon worker to quit. Um, <laughs> so we live in the top floor flat and um, we were just being like awful millennials and couldn't get a spot for Tesco's and Sarah's got Prime. And so we um, we had our groceries delivered. That was top floor and apart. And he was like sort of gasping and being like, oh, there's more to come and just being sort of, and he started getting quite arsy about having to bring it up three floors and, and things and, you know, kind of offered to help, but he was just in absolute funk about it, which is, you know, I mean, I wouldn't want to do that, but still. Um, but anyway, he left and we got our shopping, but for two days now, the Amazon messenger bags that let's have like branded property of Amazon all over the place uh, are in our, are in the close. He's left, just left them on the stairs. So I think we kind of made him quit. <laughs> oh, no. French. So um, I'm, we're awful people. Um, you might be doing him a huge favour. He might go and get a job for a company that actually cares about workers' rights. and Like at a university? Oh, yeah. 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 That, what, a, what a great place to work. <laughs> I mean, definitely better paid and less precarious than working for Amazon, right? Like, absolutely. more hours. There's no such thing as a gig economy in academia. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I think we should do like a sort of, you know, it's the ultimate Venn diagram of shit, like working for Amazon, working in academia. Um, we should do like a pros and cons list and compare them because I think they're probably quite similar. Mm, yeah, what's different about working for one or the other? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, do you, does your entire profession rest on customer reviews? Yeah, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> And welcome to Law My Praxis. Today we're talking to Molly Clark about dressing, transgressing, and transdressing. I think that works, and I am a poet. Um, Molly is a PhD student in the University of Roehampton. Her thesis is titled Female Cross Dressing Genre and Popular Literary Forms from 1838 to 1900. So I'm a Victorianist, so I win. No. Um, she is the webmistress for the Victorian popular fiction association and a co-organizer of the third sex reading group thanks so much for coming on is that more or less right like sometimes we just cobble things together yeah that's right I don't I think I've forgotten who I am and what I do now so I think thanks for reminding me it's quite a good ego boost to know that I do things quick pretend that you're a 20th first you know you do modern or contemporary literature so I can claim you as one of mine I can try and pretend um, and be really awful at it or so obscure that nobody's heard anything I've done and therefore just really niche. Oh, great. Yeah, do that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm I totally. I cover all time periods. It's Time is just an object, not real. <laughs> yeah. Molly thought about contemporary literature before it was cool, Alex. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I'm way ahead of the curve. <laughs> <laughs> awful. Um so yeah, um, did you like my? Is this just trans dressing a thing, or is it just always cross dressing? I thought we could mash them up. I love that. I'd not thought of it. I don't think it's a thing. These are things that I've been trying to come up with myself as well in my th- thesis. Like, um, do I share them? Do I? Because if I share them, then, then people will know them. But um, TM 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 copyright. Yeah copyright so um you know one of my chapters is about trans textism so it's actually looking at um 
it's become very porny, which I'm I'm sure people would love to talk about. But <gasps> excited, please say more. Um, is is literally talking about men that have cross-dressing fetishes, but then write about them pretending to be women. So the narrative voice is from the perspective of the woman. So they're sort of living out that fantasy through writing the fiction. So I. I, it's probably a thing someone's going to email now and say that um I've stolen their idea but uh yeah so trans dressing sounds like it totally should be made something and I'm, I'm quite happy to give you credit for it if you let me take it <laughs> I mean we're gonna take credit for it anyway yeah we accept all citation formats apart from Chicago oh okay that's totally fine On always footnote never in text reference mm-hmm. okay always footnote always footnote, always footnote. Well, hopefully I'll get a book contract from this because I heard that that's what happens. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that is true. It's our favourite thing to do <laughs> is to claim that we were fundamental in guest success. Um, yeah, primarily books, sometimes jobs, um, mm-hmm. occasional graphic novels. Yeah. Oh, um, Madhu got that um, fellowship of the English Academy or whatever it is, the, the really scary English Studies Association. Yeah, you're welcome, Madhu. You're welcome for that one. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, yeah, we've had documentaries. and I mean, we haven't had a poet on, but I'm assuming when we do, they'll become the new poet laureate. That's just how it works. Yeah, that'd yeah. be great. We are that influential in the world. But to be to be fair, I don't think we've ever actually specifically said it on the podcast, but we thought, like, we're taking the piss out of institutions who claim, who claim, uh, like, people's work as their own like this is we are consciously doing this it's not just us being dicks well it is it is us being dicks <laughs> Louise if you have to explain the joke it's not funny <laughs> well I feel like sometimes I'm like sometimes I like get like a little bit like should I really be retweeting this with a comment saying lol we did this and I always do it anyway but sometimes I get a pang of guilt um when we do that no regrets. Um, I don't know if you can hear this, but my dog is currently squeaking at me, so I'm gonna just go let her out. Bear with me for a moment. Who let the dogs out? Praxis. Praxis. Love my praxis. Sorry, to get kind of back on topic while mm-hmm. Alex wrangles the dogs. Um, the you said that, you said about these texts that were written by member fetishes like and posing as women, so this is like mm-hmm. a trans thing. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Like on the sort of specific texts, like because I've not heard of this. Yeah, so um, someone else discovered it initially, not me, but it turns out that Sala um, actually had uh, quite a few fetishes that um, he shared not so secretly uh, with other literary men in uh, circles like the Cannibal Club, but he then published his own uh, well, it's been attributed to him. People have got enough um, information to sort of deduce that he'd uh, written and published it himself called The Mysteries of Verbena House. And it's okay. about um, an all-girls school in Brighton and a headmistress. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, lots of kinky things happen in Brighton. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was thinking more of the all-girls school being kinky, like having having gone to an all-girls school. Yeah. Um, Do you think so I went to an all girls school and it was pretty, pretty bloody bland? Um, like may, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was my school. Maybe it was, uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe it was you. 
Maybe yeah, I was, was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was your own reality. Maybe it was Maybelline. Maybe I was born with it. Maybe my mother <laughs> sent me to an all-girls school and it's her fault I'm now married to a woman. Ha! Good one, Faye. Jokes on you, Mum. Yeah, so um, yeah, what happens at this born yeah, so girls the, Victorian school? The story is that the headmistress at the school is against corporal punishment and... Um, a priest, a male priest, comes along and convinces her that it's necessary and that it works and that actually she might find that she enjoys it. Um, mm. Classic priest move. Oh, yeah, it's so godly of him, um, just showing her the right, the right way. Um, so they catch a girl at the school. She's stolen. Uh, there's a few girls. There's a girl that's stolen something, a girl that's caught with porn, and another, I can't remember what, um, I think it might even have been a girl that was caught masturbating. And um, she punishes them, all three of them. Um, and every adult in the text finds this, um, these scenes ridiculously pleasurable. It goes into so much detail. And then at the end, um, her and the priest are so horny that they have sex. Um, it's got to be one of the funniest things I think I've ever read in my life that and co-authored a pantomime called Harlequin Prince Cherry Top and the Good Fairy Fair Fuck oh my god which I first read at the BL um on in hard copy and collecting that from (laughs) um the desk at the BL was just had to have been one of the funniest and most embarrassing moments um was it Prince Fairy Fuck what was the name title of your sex tape it was Harlequin, Prince Cherry Top, and the Good Fairy Fair Fuck. Oh, my God. Yeah. Tyler, your sex tape. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. I mean, like, when when he's writing this as well, though, like, do you think it's tongue-in-cheek or is, he, is it like my dad wrote a porno, you know, where, where it's just fucking terrible and just awful um, or and, and sort of kind of serious? but Or, or does it, is it aware of itself? Is it like lol the the lesbian school children and the priest lol like um I think the panto is definitely just taking the piss out of themselves like the guys the circle that were sharing their weird um kinks with one another the the literature I think is that bit more serious um so uh, research into Sala himself like he went to school in Brighton and he was also in the same circle you had Swinburne who had wrote the flogging block and they um you know was subject like the, the conversations about corporal punishment were happening at the same time so there's definitely something political in there um but what was most interesting is that uh, there were these uh letters that were popping up in periodicals and papers at the time um in particular in English domestic women's magazine of women talking about tight lacing and corporal punishment and it turns out that or a few of them were admitted that they were men writing in that liked to be put in corsets or liked the idea of women being um whipped but uh other scholars, I, I won't take credit for it myself, seem to believe that he actually, because Blake was in um, part of these, mag- not Blake, sorry, Sala was part of these magazines, these newspapers himself. He was an editor and a, and a writer. And um, there's loads of similarities between these entries and the texts that he himself published. Um, so they definitely think that uh, he had, yeah, this fetish and didn't really know what to do. I say he didn't know what to do about it there's also um 
oh god what's the text called that's really gonna bug me my secret life uh ashby actually outs sala and says that he goes to a brothel in um can't remember where in london which is that it's now a lovely house that no one could afford um but it was a specifically a whipping brothel so he was outed for for enjoying being whipped um it was no so can you just like quickly for someone who has no idea who sala is other than that he enjoyed being whipped who who that who is <laughs> who is sala george augustus sala was uh he was a, a, a a Victorian bohemian. He was a bit of everything. He was kind of lower middle class, if we just to get a rough idea of where he sat in the the nineteenth century um, social world. Uh, he dabbled in illustration. He was an editor, an author, a journalist. He wrote for uh, Household Words. He um, he helped design sets for theatres. He sort of was in that literary world um, doing lots of things. Um, he never quite made it uh, like others in his circle, uh, like, yeah, Swinburne or um, there was a guy called Edward Sellen. He was he's very much on the cusp of it, but that was because he seemed, I, I use the word fluid. I don't like to use the word fluid just because... I don't know, it doesn't seem right, but there was something about him that sort of, from what I've read about him and what I, the research I've done myself, he seemed to be holding back ever so slightly. He didn't necessarily want to conform to um, being, you know, an elite Victorian author that published, um, you know, incredible travel writing pieces, because which he did, he did travel and he wrote great pieces and he wrote lots of um, social commentaries and, um, he was clearly very well read and 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 a very political person, but um, equally very smutty and dirty, and he he liked his kinks. Yeah, because like I think the only thing I've heard of Sala is the uh, he did a big Dickens autobiography. He's like one of his most famous things, and I, so I just kind of thought he was boring. So I'm really enjoying finding out that he was absolutely not boring. That he was rather interesting. Academics returning to libraries, archives and museums after lockdown be like When I touch you like this And I hold you like that It's so hard to believe But it's all coming back to me It's all coming back It's all coming back to me now I was thinking as well, like, when you're talking about, like, um, the discussions about corsetry and mm. stuff. So is, is it maybe this kind of point that corsets become kind of sex objects? They kind of change that thing from just like something that women wore to being, or was that very much present prior to this point? Like, did it take kinky letters about getting strapped into a corset in the late 19th century to suddenly become a sexy thing? Sure, it's really interesting you say that because... When I, the research I've done into corsets and corsetry, or like that moment in particular, the discussion was more about whether, um, sort of physically, it was uh, the right thing to do, um, or med- physically and medically, whether women should be tight lacing mm-hmm. like that. It wasn't natural. It was harmful. Um, there was, yeah, there was definitely a more conservative 
angle that was saying, um, you know, it's unnatural to look that way. Women shouldn't be like that where their bosoms are so um, prominent in comparison to their waist. So there was definitely some sort of fear around it, but I, I haven't actually uh, looked before that to see where the sort of sexualization originated. Um, I suppose my, my personal fascination has been with the fact that um, some men were quite blatantly admitting that they themselves enjoyed being in the corsets and being tight-laced um especially because we have um these preconceived notions and by we I mean probably lots of Victorians themselves and then also us today that you know these gender roles and the Victorians were really strict and they didn't do these things and it was either you're a man or a woman and you're feminine or you're masculine and it is there, like literally in yeah. the correspondence columns of these magazines that we would just glance over, especially because some of them were just cheap things. We think, oh, you know, that was trashy fiction. It's not worth studying. And it is literally there that this guy is asking where he can go and get a corset made for himself to fit his frame so he can tight lace himself. And you're telling me that the Victorians didn't like sex or didn't like enjoy enjoy life they quite clearly did they had a lot of fun um it's like victorian marking bingo like when you mark essays <laughs> it's how the, the victorians were repressed uh, all women were um oppressed they had terrible lives and also the victorian period was a period of change that's your uh your absolute top oh, three a period of great change great change the most mm-hmm. important change of all time no other era had yes. ever experienced change until the victorian period no, obviously not. Oh, That's no. why we're the best. Um. <laughs> it's very true. But I think we have a lot to answer for. By we, do you mean scholars or just people? Yeah, or maybe not scholars, like people. Um, because now uh, going back and doing this work, and it's not just me, obviously other people are doing it too. Um, I mean, like a look of Fern Riddle's book coming out, um, came, I think came out today. Um, but you know, people are looking at it and, and looking at this period and saying, like, it's there, it's all there, but we've we're perpetuating this narrative. We're the ones that are using that framework to um oh, I can't think of the word now, but like to make us feel better about the the sort of binaries and the roles that we put in place in society. We're saying mm-hmm. you have people that say, Oh, you know we people never used to do that in before or people like this never existed tell me that they did like like show me proof that they didn't because they did but we're using that idea that um oh queen victoria didn't believe in lesbians and therefore lesbians never happened and things like that it just it we're using a victorian stick imaginary victorian stick to beat ourselves with and um i I think we need to stop doing that and and we can do yeah. I don't know if you heard, but um, there were loads and loads of men in consensual homosexual relationships who were executed. I don't know if you've heard this in the Victorian period. <laughs> yeah. Did a famous female doctor say this? I did hear that. You know, I heard that, that was some rigorous research took place. Mm. Death recorded. I, I don't know if you've heard that phrase. I did what hear What do you this. think of that bullshit? Because like, um, obviously, the, like, I mean, it's not directly related to your work, but the, there are some aspects that must kind of cross over a bit. We'd just like to get Naomi Wolf into every podcast, basically. Let's invite her on. 
I mean, the woman absolutely blows my mind. Is there just some point that you get to in your career where like actual history just doesn't matter anymore and you just Yeah, start... I think you get to write your own and like invent it. It is just, I, and I, yeah, I suppose leading on from what I was just saying about the Victorian period and perhaps it's why I've like stumbled upon the research that I'm doing is this stubbornness my own stubbornness, which I think a lot of people maybe come to their own research through through stubbornness, but and this refusal to to accept the 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 ways in which we've perce- we perceive history and it, and it's not true, um, especially when it just comes to the struggles and the lives of of real people, um, you know, just it just frustrates me so much uh, to think that these people like Naomi Wolf have a platform um because it changes it does change how things are today and and it it hinders progression and and expression and it's just yeah it's very frustrating it's kind of a bit of a tool for turfs as well like um history is a great Mm. thing for perpetuating transphobia or like a version of history is um a great thing for perpetuating things like transphobia Yay. Yay. By which I mean, this is a timely contribution to research. I realised that I, I have skipped a really important part of our, uh, our structure. Well, a lot of it. So, um... I've got the kazoo. Um, we have um, curated a jingle uh, for you in your research. And the game Yay. is Name That Tune and Why Is It Related to You? Okay? You ready? I didn't. I did. Maybe I did the first time, but I didn't the second time. I did the second time because I realised what I was doing. (laughs) Do it again. Do it again. (laughs) Oh, is Molly gone? You still there? Oh, the power of the kazoo forced her off the platform. Oh, Jesus. I was just so good. Whoopsie. Oh, are you back? Oh. Oh, it was pretty powerful. I thought that was great. I think I got it. If that helped, was it? Dude looks like a lady. It was. Yes. It instantly makes me think of Mrs. Doubtfire. Instantly, Obviously. I think Robin Williams maybe was responsible for the interference there because he was just so inspired by how good the kazoo was. See, I thought you were going to say that Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire was solely responsible for your thesis. And if that's the case, <laughs> fine. That's that's wonderful. <laughs> We all have our origin story. Maybe, maybe subconsciously it's always been there. Yeah. I mean, my mum likes to tell me that it was because um, I played Hansel in uh, the school pantomime in year six and I was the first girl. Then, you know, normally in a panto, a guy plays a girl and it was the first year that they had a girl Mm -hmm. play a guy. And my mum was like, I think he was like subconsciously very traumatised by that. And now you're trying to find um, a way to deal with that trauma. (laughs) Love how it's like always, why is it always trauma? Why can't it just be like, you know what? You just had the best time and you want to continue doing it. 
Also, I mean, that's a pretty good part. I was always like, we always did the fucking nativity, so I was always a fucking shepherd. Always a shepherd. I mean, I don't think shepherd's a bad thing. Mary and Joseph have way too much responsibility. I mean, true. And Mary was always a wee Mary bitch was well. always a bit. <laughs> like, very cheap. the worst. What were you in school nativities, Alex? I don't know. I didn't go to particularly religious schools, so I don't think we did any, like, thing like that. I'm trying to think. You know what? If I can't remember, it's probably because I was like a fucking sheep or something. <laughs> oh. yeah. I like the idea that you were a sheep and I was a shepherd. It just kind of reinforces the paradigm dynamic that I have in my head. We'll stick with that just for, just for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> just for the podcast. <laughs> Molly, the point, because we, we, we were thinking of what kazoo jingle to choose, there are loads of, not even just jingles, but loads of instances of like men dressing as women. But there's hardly any that I can think of as women dressing as men. I'm so glad you mentioned that. That is the point that inspired my thesis. Um, I So when I was doing my master's, it took me that long. Um, not the master's, but to get to it, I read Tipping the Velvet by Sarah Waters and just started delving into uh, some research and, and trying to see instances of women dressing as men. And other than sort of end of the century drag kings like Vesta Tilly, uh, found it really hard and refused to believe that there weren't more real life or textual instances. Um, and yeah, I just made it my mission to sort of find more and, and more at the um, earlier end of the or start of the century. Because uh, when I yeah when I did re- start the research, there were a few things towards like the 1880s to the turn of the century, but I wasn't satisfied with that. I really wanted to be very early to mid Victorian period. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm still, I'm still looking for them. <laughs> and that's not to say that they're not there. Uh, they really are. Um, in newspapers, there's, there's tons of newspaper articles about, um, you know, postmortems, uh, of reveals of uh, sailors and soldiers that have turned out to be women, um, drunken mm-hmm. fights at pubs, and it turns out one of the people that was fighting um, was was a woman uh, or female. I should say female, because um, this is uh, where my research sort of bridges into two different directions. So my thesis is looking very much at cross dressing. Um, but some of the archival research that I do um, is sort of helping to uncover sort of potential trans or non-binary lives in the Victorian period. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I, I'm not going to gender anyone or give anyone a label um, that they couldn't have given themselves. But uh, mm-hmm. just revealing these instances and showing that people chose to live as a man for um, all of their lives or you know, may have struggled with their identities and just highlighting that and letting people make of that what they will um, is sort of the mm. other branch. Is there, like, this is some, like, I think it's great. Like, I, I do, um, because, you know, we need to find these narratives and particularly it happens to be Pride Month. When oh, we're yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Very apt. Yeah. Um, but is there, like, a weird politics of, like, speculation and stuff? Like, you know, why should we be revealing postmortems? Like, is there is do you have do you struggle a little bit with the sort of ethics? Completely. Thing yeah. There? Um. So I did some work for the National Archives recently, and um, 
I was helping them come up with um, content for social media. And one of the tweets was uh, a letter that had been used. So this wasn't um, someone that identified as trans or may have identified as trans, but just an instance of what you're saying. Um, It was a a personal letter that um, a guy had sent to another man that he was having an affair with, and it was used in evidence. And he... um, you get the impression that he was probably closeted and not, you know, out or, or proud. And and then we're now sharing that letter. And someone said, you know, you're outing him. He might have relatives somewhere that you know, he may not be alive anymore, but he might have relatives and, and that's not fair. And um, that, yeah, really made me stop and think that's very true. You know, what are the wishes of that person? And I think we were talking about it as well, um, when we were talking about Gentleman Jack in the, the third sex reading group that, you know, Anne Lister's diary was in code and, and who has the right to, to translate that diary and share it with the world. Um, mm. And and these instances, yeah, of revealing someone's biological sex, you are, you're outing them or, or dead naming them. And um, mm-hmm. if that were to happen, you know, to someone that were alive today, I mean, it's just, all, you wouldn't do it. You know, it's awful. So, so why, why are we doing it to people that have died? Um, but when there are so many people now, transphobic and homophobic people that are claiming that um, non-binary, gender fluid, trans people never existed. Um, yeah. We did. Yeah. I think we, we owe it to ourselves to share this kind of fluidity with the world not necessarily putting a label on it, um, but just showing mm-hmm. not everyone lived their lives in that one box, whether that be, you know, cisgender, heterosexual, like people lived, you know, just as fluid lives as some people are choosing to live now. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely really difficult, but uh, I like mm-hmm. to think that um, it's doing more good than it is harm. Yeah, I think in the process of recovery, or like you say, the I've also just looked out the window and there's two pigeons like really aggressively fucking. Sorry, fuck's sake. The uh, the point I was going to say was like I think that's a, it's a really difficult thing to balance, right? Is precisely what you're saying that kind of um, the act of recovery or sort of like establishing an alternative history that kind of somehow can kind of stick two fingers up towards the kind of like that that victorian stick that you were talking about earlier and sort of i don't know give us a different twist on what that stick is and how we perceive that period to be and the people that occupied it and the sexualities and genders and as you say just the different sort of like i don't know relationships that were in that period i think is really important but yeah it's so hard to do so without whilst also being I don't know, like respectful and not just using their experiences as a way to progress our own particular politics or research. I don't know. It's a really hard one. I'm glad I don't do it. Thanks for doing it for me, Molly. (laughs) I try. (laughs) It's like, so like James Miranda Barry or Dr. James Barry is um, some, a really good example of this. Um, I don't know if you Mm -hmm. saw, um, I can't remember the scholar's name and it's probably a good thing that I'm not mentioning them because I, I, I think it was not okay what they were doing, but uh, had researched and was writing a biography of Barry as though they were, um, you know, like a pioneering woman that 
um, felt that they could only get to where they were or could only achieve such a, a an outstanding medical career by passing as a man. And yet there's so much mm-hmm. evidence to suggest that um, Barry's choice to live as male and present as male was personal. Um, they did not want their body to be, um, they did not want a post-mortem um, following death. Um, just there were loads of reasons to suggest that this this went beyond career choice. Um and yet you've got um, you know, transphobic uh, radical feminists that want to claim uh, Barry as a figure of, um, you know, a transgressive uh, woman who was, you know, breaking into the um, male dominated field when actually that's not necessarily the, the life that Barry lived. Um, and equally, I'm not going to claim that Barry was non-binary or um I do not know their their chosen mm-hmm. um identity I don't know their chosen gender but um I think by just saying that that you know the way they lived was non-normative um doesn't hurt anyone and and lets people um interpret that the way that you know that might benefit them whether that's personally or intellectually because I think a lot of people can learn from these histories um, and and identify with these histories. Um, And we shouldn't take that away from them by sort of imposing an agenda. Um, Yeah, it is a tough one. Very tough. I've just realised that we've not asked you for your Tinder bio. Oh, yeah, my Tinder bio. Um... So my Tinder bio was sexing up Dickens one titbit at a time and, and titbit specifically. I realise, I, I know people can't see me, I have a brace in, so I apologise for the, the awful pronunciation of tit. Um, but uh, I sort of earned a reputation for myself in my first year within my department for being fixated on an illustration of uh, a woman accidentally revealing her boob. And... Um, it became a thing um and a lot of the fiction that I look at is is uh sort of periodicals cheap popular fiction that was on par with Dickens and um that also became another focus of mine was uh when I was trying to explain my work to people it was like how can I nuance sexing up Dickens like (laughs) it's not Dickens wasn't able to make things sexy but these people were with tits um and and I'm doing that by inadvertently sharing it with the world (laughs) so do you think that's a viable practice for making research more interesting at conferences just like if no one's paying attention just quickly whack out a boob (laughs) whack out do a Janet Jackson yeah (laughs) Yeah, do a quick little nip slip back on track yeah nip slip is practice (laughs) (laughs) because I was actually I was just thinking about it there and it's just like you know what unless I'm being really stupid, there's a distinct lack of real sex Completely. in Dickens. Like, and, and I'm now just like racking my brain because I'm like, you're going to sound like an idiot, Louise. But there, there, I think, yeah, there really is. Like that there's, yeah, like even compared with sort of his contemporaries that we sort of regard as like the canon or whatever, like he is one of the least sexual authors yeah. out there. 
completely and um, do you reckon there's like a really really lively fandom that goes back and rewrites all the dickens with a lot of the dick kind of ironic isn't it no dick and dickens uh that's why i like him because there's no dick oh oh yeah (laughs) shut up louise shut up louise I feel like if this hasn't been done, it needs to be done. Like, um, but there is actually because um, um, Holly Ferno has done work on this um, in um, an archive of our own. There are loads of Dickensian uh, fan fiction. Uh, specifically, there is. She I was at a conference and she did a paper on. Um, there's loads of from our mutual friend um, Eugene Rayburn and Mortimer Lightwood. Um, there's loads of like shipping them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there, okay, there if you is could put a sex scene. scene into a Dickens novel, which novel and between and uh, yeah, what what sex scene would it be and why? That's to both of you because I don't do 19th century. Oh God, I'm not really very good at Dickens. Isn't that awful? I'm such an awful 19th centuryist. I've just avoided Dickens for as long as possible. <laughs> um, Havisham. Oh yes, great. I mean Havisham would be pretty good. It's got to be Havisham. Because, like, obviously, like, if she if sort of stuck to the, like, no sex pre-marriage, that's a lot of pent-up have-a-shimming. Have-a-shimming? <laughs> like, she's going to go fucking crazy. I feel like <laughs> have-a-shimming would be the new thing as well. Like, I don't know what it would be, but it would be the new thing. That's great. Yeah. Fucking tear off the veil, like, in the throes of passion. Yeah, that's that's what I think. Have-a-shimming. Next on the dead wedding cake. Lovely. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I feel like there has got to be a porno with Nancy um, from Oliver. Like, as in in real life, I'm pretty sure that must exist because Nancy's oh, yeah. hot. Like, there's got to be. I'm thinking of. Oh, what, I'd do anything for you, dear. Yeah. Anything. There's got to be. A, if there's a panto porno out there, Oliver Twist has got to be it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, the problem is, though, like like a lot of Victorian novels and just general Victorian culture, there's a lot of creepy stuff going on with, like, children. There's a lot of, like, kind of desire related to children in Victorian culture, which is really problematic. Yeah, I mean, as soon as I said the word porno panto and Oliver Twist, I regretted that massively because Oliver Twist is, is about children. <laughs> um... <laughs> But you're definitely not wrong. Um, poor children. Yeah. I mean, like going back to that for Ben House, like these girls in in this boarding school are. I think they're described as being like eleven or twelve, but they're also. Um, it says that you know they were more womanly and they were really, yeah, you know, they're fleshly bodies and they are depicted as though there are women, but at the end of the day, the author has said they're 11 or 12. So um, mm. it's not okay. <laughs> it's definitely yeah. alarm bells. Some weird discourses and rules. But I mean, not to kink shame ever. Let's, this is a bad move away from paedophilia. Let's, let's just like, draw a line <laughs> under that section. Uh, but would Victorians have enjoyed kink at Primed? 100%. I, I think the Victorians, I think they were probably the kinkier than we are now. Um, I really think they were. I think nowadays a lot of people love kink for the sake of kink. The Victorians made it edgy. 
Um, they were doing it when they shouldn't have been doing it. So having said that, I don't know how the Victorians would have felt about pride. Um, mm. That I think maybe that would have been a big issue with the whole making homosexuality illegal. It would have been a bit more of a protest um, than a celebration. <laughs> but uh, definitely. Excellent. I'm glad we put that to rest because it comes up every year about kink and pride. Um, it's really important. It's been all over Twitter. It is today. Is I yeah I noticed that it was all about kink. Looks like they would benefit from applying a more rigorous transgender studies framework to their analysis. So, what is for us like then? As again, as someone who is not a 19th centuryist. What is popular fiction and why is it so salacious um, and what makes it so super erotic? That why is popular fiction question is haunting me <laughs> throughout my thesis. Um, I'm being, I'm constantly being told that I need to define this better. Um, but so the instances I'm looking at, <clears throat> excuse me, it's like uh, forms of cheap, easily or more accessible fiction that was widely read by um vast audiences uh so i think uh reynolds the author reynolds and his work like the mysteries of london is probably a really good example of that uh it, it was more popular than dickens uh it was produced and published in a really similar way as dickens's work but the key thing was it was cheaper so more people could read it uh and it I think it maybe even went on the series maybe went on for a little longer than some of Dickens's series um because it was that popular um Mm -hmm. why is it so salacious that's what I'm trying to figure out really um there was a lot of passing as in like not so much gender passing but um genre passing uh that some of this stuff was getting into uh, Middlebrow magazines always being targeted at Middlebrow audiences as being uh, like allusions to classical, um, so illustrations being allusions to classical art or um, stories that were maybe a bit gothic. But actually, when you delve in a lot deeper, it was just smutty. Um, <laughs> I love that, that that coining of a genre passing. That's a great way of phrasing it. Yeah, I mean, literally, they're borrowing bits from other texts constantly, whether that's sort of um, character tropes or plot lines. And they're also borrowing that from porn, um, hmm. from erotica, like uh, hmm. Reynolds. I'm I've, I'm so desperately searching for hard proof. And if someone's got it, please let me know. But I'm pretty sure Reynolds read Dessard because some <laughs> of his stuff, the allusions to... Um, 18th century pornography are just uh, I, I mean they're, they're blatant copies in my opinion but more my, detail my what, what specific say that. what specific 18th century pornography appears in Reynolds like um, so smut 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 <laughs> um, so I think that um, Reynolds would have or was uh, heavily inspired by the Marquis de Sade and his works on Justine and Juliet um, he wrote to um, he wrote a memoir about a girl called Rosa Lambert Reynolds did um, and her story 
follows almost exactly one of Dassard's stories, this idea of the um, the girl who is manipulated into losing her virginity before marriage and therefore she's unworthy and she spends the rest of her life as a mistress going from man to man and the poor girl is like raped and abused and equally at the same time she takes younger lovers and she, what I think is really radical about the text is there's like moments where um, Reynolds implies that she's having sex for enjoyment and for pleasure. Um, My God. And yeah. And, and uh, yeah, the, she meets uh, all these different kinds of men and has all these relationships and, and, uh, Ultimately, it's not a happy ending. So I'm, I'm definitely not saying it's progressive in that sense. The poor woman dies um, as some all of a sudden very ugly and penniless. But um, the the plot sort of the parallels are, are uncanny. Um, and then there are like instances of cross-dressing in particular where um, in one text, uh, this lover dresses as a man to go and visit her husband in prison. And that's exactly what Dassard's wife did when he was imprisoned. She dressed as a man so that she could go and visit him because women weren't allowed in prison. Um, there are all of these things where I feel like there's too many overlaps for them to be coincidence. But because I haven't got that hard proof yet, I can't explicitly say he loved porn and he put porn in his popular fiction. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm I'm hoping that if I can at least share these crossovers, people will be like, ah, yeah, yeah, she's right. She's she's done her work <laughs> and it's there. Um, just related to sort of Victorian sexuality and gender and all this stuff, what is the third sex? And also what is the fourth sex? And more importantly, what is the first sex? <laughs> well, there's, when is it going to end? Um so the third sex, or at least where I got that from for the reading group, was um, sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld wrote um, a really small um, study, a really small, that's, no offence Hirschfeld, but it was quite small and that's fine because <laughs> it was manageable. Really it. I could read it. Yeah, I could read it from cover to cover. Um, but he uh, wrote a study uh, about Berlin's third sex and it was sort of, it was sort of based on um, homosexuals, but he kind of was alluding to the fact that there was this sort of group of just other people that weren't straight and weren't male or female, that there was this kind of third existence um, and that he was starting to study these people. And um, he, he eventually went on to have his own institute and he um, was the first person to coin the term transvestite and then one of his students um, you know coined the term transsexual and and it kind of um, developed from there he was definitely wasn't the first you just said about pigeons there's now pigeons outside my window aggressively having sex this is definitely (laughs) catching Um, maybe it's all this talk about sexuality and porn and and um but yeah so picking up on it it was this kind of emergence of something outside of the binary um which is why i i took that uh the third sex and used it for the group this yeah idea of other so is that related to like the sort of ideas about sexologists like gendered inverts that's what i took yeah yeah so i was wondering because obviously you've sort of done sort of women dressing as men 
and things. Is there a discourse about inversion happening there? Where did um what with the third sex you mean? Um, there's not so much. Um at least in that text, it was very much focused on, isn't it always, on men. And men weren't regarded to be inverts. Like that was definitely like women were inverts and men were homosexual. Um, so because the study was mainly on men that were in relationships with men, kind of wasn't there. And to be fair, in the whole of that text, which like I said, isn't very long, it is mainly focused on men. There's the I think there's like one brief mention of a masculine looking woman that dressed as a man, but otherwise mm-hmm. it, it is mainly about men. Um, but then you've got, um, you know, the sexologists that pre- preceded uh, Hirschfeld, like um, Von Kraft Ebbing and, oh God, what's the other guy's name? I'm sure that was another E. Havelock Ellis, maybe? Yeah, that's it. Have a look, Alice. Um, I'm obviously not an expert on my own, own field. Um, but yeah, they were definitely more focused on a much... They had more labels, actually. Mm. I think that's probably the, the better way to explain it, is um, they were looking at all of these varieties of gendered and sexual expression and giving them very clear labels. Whereas I think Hirschfeld seemed to be a bit broader even though he he did come up with the term transvestite um didn't seem so fixated on on the labeling mm. um which i approve of i i personally think that um those uh, those early sexology based labels were were pretty damaging mm. um and they weren't necessarily progressive it was very medical as opposed to accepting and about uh you know progressive well just progressive thinking it it, it wasn't really um but Hirschfeld was very much an ally and uh he was a gay man himself believed to have cross-dressed um which is why I I much prefer his his work to the others yeah he sounds baller (laughs) there's some really great pictures on um in the welcome libraries collection of him with uh, the people that lived with him in his institute and and it looked like they had some incredible parties I definitely think we should reenact them when when the third sex reading group can um can get together in in real life maybe that's what we'll do is have like an incredible early um 20th century style German party not that I know what that would entail at all but um it sounds much <laughs> better than when anything else I'm up to yeah kind of top hat and tails is like the thing yeah. As Judith Butler famously writes in Gender Trouble. But like, so when we're thinking about um, sort of female to male cross-dressing, so we've spoken about the sort of more real life examples, but it was a huge sort of music hall phenomenon as well. You mentioned tipping the velvet and that. But was that performance of masculinity, was it was it accurate? Was it funny? Was it kind of, could it be kind of a bit conservative in the fact that it would use stereotypes? Like what sort of, sort of songs and acts would people like Vester Tilly do? 
it so it was definitely conservative in the sense that it was like you couldn't be too masculine um it had to be pretty obvious that the person on stage was a woman uh dressed as a man as opposed to you know that uh, ambiguity about whether the performer on stage was actually male um and it the songs and the characters were really overtly masculine it would be um so i i think sarah waters um sort of depictions of of the drag queen drag king rather uh um a pretty spot on uh this idea of them singing about uh flirting with girls or um being in the army or dressed as a sailor was very much um you know the common repertoire of a of a late 19th century drag gang uh god forbid um a woman look too mas- masculine and um actually could have passed as a man on stage that would have been way too radical um and not at all okay for the the poor eyes of the <laughs> the victorian in the audience um so yeah I don't know whether that it makes sense to say that it was conservative in that respect, because I think equally there was a, a, a sexualization of these women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their their bosoms would their bosoms. God, I'm speaking as though <laughs> I am a Victorian. Um, I should just say tit, shouldn't I? Their tits were <laughs> emphasized, and their waists would have been cinched, and they would have worn makeup. Um, maybe more subtle makeup, but the, the kind of makeup that they would have been expected to have worn at the time. Um, they would have likely been very petite. Um, like if you had a, a slightly masculine, taller woman that decided, I want to, I, I want to do that. I, I can't imagine they would have had very much success. Uh, it needed to have been a very feminine woman who, as soon as they left the theatre, so like Vesta Tilly, there are some, amazing images of festatily in her like women's dresses and gowns and um extremely feminine it, again the other end of the, the spectrum overtly feminine um there's this real emphasis on being one or the other um so yeah it does that make sense to say that it was conservative by not allowing these women to go all the way in passing uh, it had to be kind of a standard point of um reference that you know I am a woman dressed as a man not a man on stage before you um so in terms of like the dressing then like I am perhaps imagining a very caricaturist caricaturist costume of like top hat tails and like a fake mustache like have you yeah. done much research into the actual like what were the actual kind of clothing and dressing that um was taking place here because to me I'm just thinking of it as like a very like a, a like a huge performance right but I'm guessing there's also something slightly more everyday um costuming I don't I struggle I don't think costuming is the right word for it either but you get the vibe yeah top hat and tails is probably the most common image that you'd come across uh, mm-hmm. like images that exist um either that or uh, a uniform um okay. probably a sailor's uniform or a soldier's uniform and exactly as you'd imagine um so not even necessarily a real uniform but the kind of uniform that even a, a male actor maybe would have worn in a panto um it was very caricature um 
I wish I can share could share with you now. I've got um, the National Archives. I've got some incredible small um, like a bits of ephemera from Vestatili performances mm. um, at the early twentieth century, I think. And yet, one of them is a sailor's costume, and the other is the yeah the famous top hat, top hat and tails with cane. Um, and that kind of pose, holding the cane and holding the top hat, uh, almost like, um, oh, God, what? Do you remember those food sauces that you used to get and the guy used to wear a bowler hat? The um, Oh, um, like family pride or something, that home pride? Oh, yeah, almost, yeah. Do you know that? that am I making sense where I'm get, coming from with that? That kind of image of oh, your your friendly neighbourhood man. It was that kind of thing. Like, you'd see me walking down the street. I'm just like the rest of you, but equally, I'm quite clearly a woman because I've got boobs and makeup on. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a caricature. It was, it's so ironic, I feel. I find it quite frustrating, if anything, that um, it's such a cool a way and or like such an early form of drag literally like mm. performing mm. gender you are quite literally doing that but equally you're just not going all the way like the you you're holding back and then that in itself is really twisted and fun that you want to know that that's a woman dressed as a man what what about that works would it not have been um fine to have just had an actor that actually was a female and you never knew mm-hmm. um there's almost even like a little bit of kink there knowing full well that that woman is a man mm-hmm. um it's that yeah there's this weird I find it frustrating and there's equally this weird frustration in that moment of um oh yeah we're not going to let you fully be a man you you need to be a woman but oh look at this woman dressed as a man it's just yeah it's very strange it's incredible I love it (laughs) cool contrary to the belief that Victorian sex lives were very very boring 19th century sex cultures be like I mean, I think so. I think we've got kind of like one final question because I'm, I'm wary of time. Um, and it's this <clears throat> Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. And her whip was a phallus? Thoughts, <laughs> comments, responses? Discuss. Discuss. Um, the first thing I must say shout out to my incredible friend Anushka who for my birthday last year actually bought me a whip so that when I could next present about Lola in person I could hold a whip as I was doing it incredible Um, that's she's a great friend um Lola Montez oh man she just blows my mind the fact that she existed um and literally just broke down so many boundaries with this whip <laughs> and I think oh I just think she's incredible and I can imagine that being so outrageous was such a turn-on for so many popular audiences men and women uh because she was so powerful um she just knew what she was doing so who, who she was knew she? how to get a story yeah. so she she was um 
an Irish dancer, but she couldn't dance. So she would just... <laughs> yeah, so oh my God, it's like dancing. me in musicals. I can't fucking <laughs> dance. <laughs> Well, it's like me, I say I'm an academic, I'm pretty shit at it, to be fair. So she would just be really sexy, um, and her famous dance was pretending to be covered in spiders. And so as she was wriggling to get the spiders off, you know, she may have had a nip slip, um, or at least it got close to it, and she'd be lifting her skirt to get the spiders out. Um, And so people would flock to come and see her, but equally... A lot of people were disgusted by that. They they found that um, it was outrageous. And um, she found herself in Germany and she became the mistress of King Ludwig. And it turns out that perhaps the German Civil War was started because of their affair. So she was thrown out of Germany. Um, and that's when the first whipping incident happened, was when she was in Germany. She was approached by a soldier who scared her horse so she whipped him and it made it into the press and (laughs) all over like international press uh people were absolutely fascinated um uh how bold she could have been and um if you then track her throughout throughout the newspapers and, and throughout her life there are endless numbers of whipping instances where she's attacking men um attacking her servants um she just had a bit of a, a thing for her whip and, and everyone seemed to love that. And that's what they wanted to see from her on stage. Um, when was she around? Like what sort of year was this early Victorian, late Victorian? Early to mid. Oh, really? um, well, I mean, she was around for, she lived quite a while um, and she was probably around until, I think she was around until the seventies off the top of my head. Um but yeah, it was very early to mid uh, 19th century, which is what I think is so fascinating because, again, she was so unwomanly in the sense that she wasn't this Victorian ideal. Yeah, because it's kind of like what you were saying that there was more stuff from the end of the century coming out because, like, you know, you could maybe align sort of masculinity creeping into femininity with like the new woman at the end of the century but this is much earlier so I was thinking um the whole whipping thing like there's that scene in Aurora Floyd by um Mary Elizabeth Braddon where she beats the shit out of um the groom because the groom kicked her dog um and she she whips him and that's been used by a lot of scholars to be like oh she's she's whipping him with a phallus and all that stuff so maybe there's a (laughs) inspiration there they're definitely, yeah, there's a few texts, actually, um, where there's an instances. There's um, an American, the author escapes me. It wasn't this, It wasn't popular. It's not canonical. Um, but there was a text that came out a similar sort of time that Lola was touring in America about this sort of adventurous uh, woman that rode horses and whipped men. And she had, a, you know, she kept a gun and um, you wouldn't mess with her. And uh, that was kind of the image that Lola was trying to um, portray for herself when she was in America. There was an instance where uh, outside of her house, um, I think someone said something that she didn't like and she just attacked this guy in front of everyone. Um, There was a time in Australia 
where um, Australia weren't really looking forward to her arrival. I'll be honest. <laughs> they were a lot more conservative. Um, they were dreading it. They'd heard all about her and her whipping in America, her whippings, multiple whippings in America, and they were dreading it. And um, someone wrote a review about her performance and called her out for being a bad dancer because she was. And um, <laughs> she she met this guy in the bar of the hotel that she was staying at and they had a full-on, the two of them um, had a full-on fight <laughs> And um, she then left the bar to go and perform straight afterwards with the bruises on her face and made up a song on stage about um, about the fight and about how this um, journalist was a coward. And, <laughs> and then from that point onwards, she, had, um, her, she did cut her tour short because she was slightly worried about the response that she could get elsewhere. But at that time, in it was in Ballarat in Australia, the rest of her run was massively popular. People wanted to see the woman who, you know, with the bruises on, on her face. Um, She's and amazing. she really built this, she built herself into a celebrity through, yeah, being a bad dancer that was sexy and liked to whip men. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. Like, I love her. <laughs> yeah. she's great Pure inspiration she's more like Lola. yeah absolutely really goals is. yeah like um i actually have a uh, one last question to finish off with because we forgot to ask you a boring fact about yourself um so this can be cut into early in the episode <laughs> um could you tell us a boring fact about yourself <laughs> there are so many boring things to choose from um, but probably the most exciting thing about me right now. Um, no, we don't want exciting. Boring. Well, it's exciting, but boring. It's okay, one of those fine. things where it's like exciting for me, probably boring for everyone else. Um, I've just joined a CrossFit gym. <gasps> oh, oh my God. God. Let's talk about CrossFit. I didn't know this was going to happen. I'm obsessed. Oh, I, thought, I thought the podcast was going to be over. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Tell CrossFit us about CrossFit and how great it is, Molly. Oh, it's so good. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. I'm in pain. I hurt a lot. Um, and every day is more painful than the last, but it's I feel great for it. It's just like being in academia, really. <laughs> yeah, it's totally punishing and it's a massive cult. It's exactly yeah, like academia. It's so true. <laughs> it's so true. I think I have an addictive personality. <laughs> the question is, though, cross-dressing? Or CrossFit? Oh. You can only have one. I can only have one. Oh. Cross-dressing, because I'm going to pretend to be someone else and then go and join another CrossFit gym and okay. you wouldn't even know. Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> yes. Excellent. Yeah, sorry. I knew that would annoy Alex. Oh, and uh, <laughs> like, I've got to ask the question because I know what's coming. <laughs> Um, because <laughs> I don't know if you know, but I do CrossFit. Oh my um, god, you know, everyone knows you're also dyslexic. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> right, on that note, um, Molly, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Um, at the moment, the third sex reading group, our next session is on um, the well of loneliness, and we'd love to get more people to come and join us to discuss that. That is the end of June I'm not going to say a date because I'm probably going to be wrong but if you follow um VPFA on Twitter 
or go onto the VPFA website. We've got the schedule on there and um, we're working on the next reading pack, which is really exciting. And we just love to, I think uh, Claire, one of my third sex co-organizers described it as a queer geek out. So if people want to geek out over queer stuff, join us because it's, it's great fun. Excellent. I can also attest to that. It is, it is good fun. We all love a queer geek out. You can find out more about the next queer geek out by following at VPFA1 on Twitter, or of course, follow Molly at MOL Clark. We've been Long My Praxis. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, a five-star output deserves five-star reviews. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing longmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at longmypraxis. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter C for corset. And the number... 1828. Our shape this week is... A whip. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye.